Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast, where we promote, educate, inspire, and entertain creators of all things related to fantasy and science fiction. Hi, this is Carson with Troy. I have with me award-winning author, best-selling author, Peter Brett, who um, series is the, the Demon Cycle. Um, I'm grateful to have him on. Peter, uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, hi, I'm Peter V. Brett. I'm the author of the Demon Cycle series uh, from Delray Books. Uh, I am not an award-winning author. I am a best-selling author. Uh, I thought you don't necessarily go hand in hand. I thought you won um, a David Jamel. I guess award. I did win a Gamel. I, I get... won a Gamel like yeah. years ago. So technically, I suppose I'm an award-winning and author. Those awards are pretty cool too. They are. I, they sent me a giant axe. Yeah. <laughs> um, nevertheless, uh, I, I, it's not really how I think of myself. Um, <laughs> I just I'm a storyteller. I like writing books. I have completed the original Demon Cycle series, which is five novels and four companion novellas that you can read or not, depending on whether or not you want to expand the world a little bit. And I'm just starting a new series. Uh, the first book, The Desert Prince, comes out in August. Um, it is set in the same world as the Demon Cycle books, but it has an entirely new cast, and uh, it's set several years after the previous series ended. You can read the new series without having read the old series, and you can read the old series and stop there and not feel like you have to continue on. But if you are a longtime reader and you want to keep going, you can, you'll see some familiar faces and, and really uh, uh, feel part of the world right away. And if you're a new reader, everything you need to enjoy the story is there in that first new book. So you don't have to worry about backtreading. Well, let's, let's go back to the beginning. Like, what was the genesis for the Demon Cycle? I had wanted to be a fantasy author since junior high school really i wrote about four books prior to writing one that was good enough to sell so i still have you know the remains of other horrible horrible novels that should never see the light of day you know buried in my backyard but it wasn't until i started working on the warded man that things really sort of clicked for me and i started writing at what i consider to be a professional level and some of that was just due to hard work and practice. And some of it was due to a literary agent taking me aside and saying, you're a really good writer, but you're clearly self-taught and you're making a lot of amateur mistakes. Here's some advice on how to get past that and get up to a professional level. And I think that without that scolding slash pep talk, I probably wouldn't have made the next leap up. And so I'm very grateful for that. The Demon Cycle series uh, was a combination of me trying to find the things that I didn't like about fantasy novels and um, tweak them so that I uh, so that they fit more with what I what my sensibilities were. I didn't like. I, I read I've read hundreds and hundreds of fantasy books. Like you can see a fraction on my bookshelves. A lot of these are my books, um, but I have a whole other set of shelves just out of sight that are all other people's fantasy books. It's always been the genre that I loved, but there were a lot of things that frustrated me there. You know, the endless, uh, I'm the heir to the throne, even though I don't know it, storylines, or like, you know, somebody's my father and I don't realize it, storylines, or the idea that you were born into magic and it's not a result of hard work and practice and sacrifice like everything else in the world. And so, I created a magic system that was based on hard work and practice more than it was based on any sort of divine providence or, uh, uh, you know, genetic midichlorian count or whatever. I wanted something that anybody could do. I mean, some people obviously are more talented at it than others, but I wanted something that anybody could learn to do with hard work and practice. And 
how different people's creativity could affect how they used it. I also wanted my heroes to be normal people that were just sort of pushed onto a different life path. So most of my stories are survivor stories. Uh, most of my characters are either the survivors of a demon attack or the survivors of some other tragedy that changed the way they thought the course of their life was going to go. And that rather than divine providence or birthright or anything uh, is what guides them to make a difference in the world. Those are the sort of things that I wanted to focus on in my books. And so I think of them as like a series of character studies at this sort of pivotal moment in history where humanity is in danger of going extinct if, uh, if something isn't done. So when you begin a new story, is that kind of where you start with is, is the character and then you develop the, the plot and setting from there? This question comes up all the time and the truth right. is that they grow together. They have to grow together. Mm. Um, I think that in my case, yeah, I was doing both. You know, I had a magic system probably before I had strong characters to go with it, but that doesn't mean that setting is worth a lot unless you have people to live in it and, and experience it and how show how it affects people's lives. And in a way that's relatable to your readers, you can only do that through characters. I do think that a character, a book with good characters, but a bad setting can still work. A book with uh, bad characters, but a good setting probably won't. On the scale, I would say I, I weigh character a little more heavily, but uh, the truth is the two of them need to go together because you can't have that sort of detailed character study unless they're living in a real vibrant world that, that feels real to the reader. For sure. And for those that are beginning writers, I think something we can learn from you, don't give up. You wrote four novels before The Warden Man. I think those are, I'm sure you learned a lot from that um, experience of, of writing those four novels. I mean, you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. And uh, I don't know any professional writer that just wrote their first, first book out of the gate and got it published. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe like their, the first book they wrote as an adult, or maybe, uh, or maybe they just kept revising the same book over and over again until they got to that point. But like anything else, like writing is hard work and practice. And some people have a little talent and affinity for it, and some people don't, but you can get there either way through that perseverance. And if you're not willing to write a book and say, wow, I learned a lot, but this isn't good enough to publish, but that hard work isn't wasted, I'm going to take what I learned and move on to the next thing. If you're not able to do that, then you're probably going to have a tough time if you want to be a writer. Um, that kind of stubbornness is, is built into the, the way the industry works. And, and rightly so, because there's so many people that want to be writers. There has to be a way to separate, separate out the ones that, that are really willing to go the extra mile and make it their best work rather than trying to publish something that isn't their best work and sort of flooding the market with things that they could have done better. I read and I, The Warden Man came out in 2008, uh, how long did it take you to write it? Do you do you remember? Seven years. Um, did it take you seven years? And and I read that you wrote it on a phone. Is that correct or, or part of it? I wrote probably 60% of it on a phone. So um, I started writing the book in 1999. I wrote one chapter and a bunch of notes. Um, it was part of an assignment for a fantasy writing class I was taking at NYU just for fun. Like uh, I had a full-time job in New York City. NYU was giving night classes that you didn't really need to be pursuing a degree for. You could just take individual classes and they had a fantasy writing class. And I said, you know, that's something I want to do. I've never taken a class before. I'll do that. 
And one of the assignments was to write the first chapter of a fantasy novel. And we were not allowed to submit things that we were already working on. I, I had a couple of books that I was already tinkering with at the time. And the teacher was very adamant that I could not use those as class material. So I made up this little story about a boy who um, could never go more than half a day's walk from his house because he always had to be home behind the magic symbols before the demons came out at night. So I wrote that story and put it aside and went back to working on the other things that I'd been working on. And it was probably a year or more before I picked it back up. And then I tinkered with it for a while and I had a complete draft 2004 and I showed it to an agent and the agent uh, had been very uh, excited when I told him about the book. But when he read the book, he said that it was not at a professional level. Um, and that was when we sort of had that heart to heart talk about what was it that was keeping me back from reaching that next uh, tier and what could I do to change that? And so we had a long discussion. He gave me a book on writing called Writing to Sell by Scott Meredith. He said, read this, go back, fix your book and come to me when it's done. That was as close as I had ever gotten to getting published in you know many years of trying. And so I took it really seriously and I said, okay, I'm going to do that. So I read the book and it was like a light bulb went off in my head and I realized a lot of the big mistakes that I was making. I was realizing why more than half of the book just had to go. And so I threw out probably 60% of the original novel that I had submitted. I kept the core Arlen Bale story that was in the middle of all of that, but I threw out all the rest and uh, started rebuilding around that. And so I built a full story skeleton outline around those chapters that I'd already written um, and created this sort of like Frankenstein book. And then I had to sit down and write out all of the, the prose to fill all that in. But I had a full-time job uh, in Times Square in New York City. I lived all the way out in Brooklyn. So I had a, about an hour commute each way every day. I also had a girlfriend and I had friends and I had a life and I was lazy. <laughs> so uh, there wasn't a lot of time to do writing. And so I decided that my subway time, which normally I would spend reading fantasy novels, I would sacrifice that reading time and spend that time writing instead. And so I had this old like HP smartphone. This is like way before the iPhone. And it had the, like the real buttons where like you could click it and feel like a satisfying like okay I definitely pressed that button and it had a really pared down version of Microsoft Word where I could see maybe three or four sentences at a time on the screen and uh, it couldn't open a big file and so what I would do is I would cut my outline for a chapter into its own file put that on the phone uh, get on the subway in the morning like shove an old lady out of the way so I could get a seat I would write until I got to work which is 45 minutes to an hour each way I'd write about 300 words on the way to work. I'd write about 300 words on the way home from work. And then I would sync that back to my computer and um, fix all of my thumb typos and uh, add another few hundred words so that I was averaging about a thousand words a day. And I did that for a year. And so I would say, you know, that whole 60% of the book that I needed to fill back in was written in that fashion. It is certainly a testament to a level of stubbornness that uh, 
that even I am a little impressed by sometimes. I did find that you can type on any kind of keyboard if you practice enough. As technology has evolved over time, I've been very quick to adopt different types of keyboards and realize that like if you type enough on your iPhone screen or if you type enough on like your the mini keyboard that comes with your iPad or whatever, you can get up to speed and, and still work and you can still get your brain into that creative place regardless of the circumstances. I think a big part of writing is training your brain to be creative on command and realizing that most of the things that you think limit your ability to be creative uh, are both. And I think that's really important. I think that uh, we all convince ourselves that we can't write for, for this reason or that. It's too noisy. I don't have my right computer. Like I'm, I'm not at home. Like, oh, I have to write with a pen because I don't have my battery died or whatever. And we tell ourselves that that's why we can't do it. But really it's just making excuses for why we can't do something. I love this story. For one, you didn't make excuses. Like you, you buckled down and you did it. And for anybody that's wanting to start writing, you have times in your day, whether that's a 10 minute break at work or a lunch break or at four o'clock in the morning. Like if you really want something, like you, you got to make a, a time for it. And, and I love your story because of that. It, it helps inspire me. That's for sure. And, and when I read your story, I mean, look, look, I'm not, I'm not a superhero. Like I, I did plenty of complaining along the way and made plenty of excuses oh, for along sure. the way. But you um, still got it done. You have, you know, you, you have a bunch yeah. and, and you inspired me when I was in college. Uh, that's the first time where I decided like I wanted to become a, a fantasy author. I'm still not there yet, but I bought this. It's an old Palm Pilot, and that's what I used to. That's what I used to write on. Yeah, I had one of those too. Did you do that like that like chicken scratch language? Yeah, like... I don't know if you'll be able to see it, but yeah, it's got the it has the code on the back that you can do. But I actually bought a keyboard for it. So like when I was in classes, I would just hook it up to the keyboard and and just type and write. Yeah, and it makes a big difference. And once I will say that, that once you get used to writing on a phone or another like extremely portable device like that, uh, I would say that the iPad doesn't even count um, because it's a little too big. But like you can write when you're online at the bank. You can write when you're online at the movies. You can write anywhere. You can like your friends late meeting you for dinner. You can sit at the table and, and get in a hundred words. You know, like once you're freed from where you have to write and you have a tool with a writing tool with you all the time, it makes it so much easier to just stay in the zone. Because if you write 50 words here and a hundred words there, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it does two things. One, it adds up over time, but it also just keeps your, keeps part of your brain focused on your story all the whole time. And so then even when you're not working uh, there's a little part of your brain that's still ticking away at, at problems. And so the next time you go back to work, sometimes you've already solved something that was holding you up before. Right. Um, exactly. They, and they do add up. Do you know off the top of your head, like um, how many words your, one of your novels is uh, you can choose whatever one. The, yeah, I can list them all probably. Um, the shortest one, uh, The Warded Man, is 168,000 words. That was cut down from an original 188,000 words when I submitted okay. it. So let's just talk um, about that one for a second. That's, my that's shortest your shortest one. one. So people that want to write, like like going on what you were saying before, like a little bit here and there and it adds up, like to get 168,000 words or let's say 188 or whatever it was, 188,000 words. Like that's only 
700 words a day, 800 words a day. I mean, I don't know exactly, but it, and, and to a professional author, I mean, you, that's doable for, for the common man, really. It's just the consistency of it. Day-to-day changes, you know, things in your life change. It, you're not always able to, to get your writing in. My go-to number has always been 1,000 words a day. Even if you're busy, even if you have kids, even if, you know, there's all the, all the excuses you can think of, like 1,000 words a day is not that much. If you apply yourself, you can do a thousand words. Like if you're really at a good clip, you can do a thousand words in less than an hour. If you're a slower writer, maybe three hours of work, but it's still, it's not that much. It's it's an attainable goal. A new writer might have to work themselves up to doing that consistently. But if you do a thousand words a day, every day, that's 365,000 words a year. That's, that's yeah. two novels. And even if you only do it every other day, that's still a novel worth of writing. You don't have to be done with a novel in a year, especially when it's your yeah. first novel. You can take as long as you want. Nobody's looking over your shoulder. That's the best novel to write because nobody cares. The fact that nobody cares is very freeing. What I discovered writing book two and, and books after that was that there was always somebody you know, pointing at their watch and saying, when's it going to be done? When's it going to be done? And that pressure can absolutely affect you creatively and um, affect your uh, outlook on your own work. Whereas the first book, like I took seven years because nobody cared. I had like all the time in the world to like, I'm going to sit this down and, you know, put it aside for six weeks and then come back to it and reread it. And like, oh, I discovered all these things that I didn't realize were there because I had that time to take a break from it. That is important and can really affect your, your work. It's not a race. It doesn't have to be a race. No, definitely. It doesn't have to be a race. Did you find... Did you find more pressure on you? Not necessarily with the, the time um, deadlines, but with, I know the Warden Man, it, it kind of took off and became pretty popular. Did you find the pressure to come out with just as good as a second book and a third and, and as the series grew on? I, I mean, this the second book slump is real. Every author I know has gone through it. Um, some of them come out the other side stronger. Some of them never come out the other side. <laughs> it's always a challenge because you pour all of your creative self into that first book one's going to buy it you don't know if it makes sense to write a sequel you don't know anything until you sell it at first and then even then there's this there's almost a year between when you sell it and it's done in your head and when other people get to see it and read it give their reactions and in that year you're usually writing the next book and so there's a there's a disconnect there it's it's difficult but i think that it hasn't noticeably affected my work the second book was probably the hardest one to write not counting this one that i just finished uh but i do think that that uh it was where i did the most growing as a writer and it was where i felt more free to do whatever i wanted rather than trying to play to what i thought publishers and agents wanted to buy so you've been a professional full-time author for a while now what is Um, What are some of your writing habits and how have they developed and changed over time? Oh, that's, I mean, that's the bigger question because my writing habits have have changed dramatically over the years. The first book I was writing on the subway because I had to. The second book, I was already a full-time author at that point. I've probably been full-time since the end of 2007. And so 13 years now, the first book I was writing on my phone all the time because I had to. Mm -hmm. The second book I had to, uh, I switched to a desktop computer 
and I had my own office in my apartment. Uh, but then my daughter was born and my office became a nursery. Um, and so then I was sort of back to trying to find a quiet space to work. And I ended up getting a studio apartment next door uh, and made that my office for a while. But then I moved a couple of times and, and holding on to a studio in New York City is not as easy as uh, you might think, especially since in that time, like uh, prices have skyrocketed. I again got an apartment later where I had a separate room that was just an office. And then I had another daughter and she took that and <laughs> turned it into a bedroom. And so I was back to using my desk, you know, in my bedroom. And now during quarantine with two kids in the house and my partner working from home uh, in a New York City apartment, like there's no normal workspace. And so I have a computer set up in the dining room and a computer set up in the bedroom and I can write on my iPad and I can write on my phone. And so uh, there's a lot of musical chairs around the house where it's just like, okay, I'm working in the living room today. And okay, I'm working in the dining room. And you just have to roll with that. I've taken to writing late at night because it's when the house is most quiet and people aren't bothering me and I can focus. Um, social media dies down, your email dies down, like the kids don't want anything like, uh, and that's when I get my best work done. Most of my writing in 2020, as I was polishing off this, uh, this new book, was done between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m., I would say. Uh, it was not, it's not easy. And as you get older, giving up that sleep is harder and harder. But it was the only time when everything calmed down. I live uh, in a part of Brooklyn that, that is uh, sort of protest central. And so this year, like in addition to all of the other trials of 2020, like there were a lot of protests going on right outside my door. There were police helicopters hovering over the building, like, and uh, getting work done during the day was just not easy for me. But doing it at night when things finally got quiet was my special time. So I still try and stick to a thousand words a day when I can, but there are definitely gap periods. Uh, I take some time off in between books and then I have a hard time getting up to speed again. Uh, it, so it, it varies, but I do think that when you're ready to go into work mode, like uh, being consistent and trying to get a certain amount done every, like a reasonable amount done every day and telling yourself, okay, if I write that much, I can spend the rest of the day guilt-free doing something else and not feel bad about myself because most writers I know really beat themselves up when they're not getting writing done. And so if you set an achievable goal and, and do it consistently, then you, you sort of give yourself permission to enjoy the rest of your life. And you said um, when you were writing the, the word, man, you had the, you had the talk with the, with the gentleman and you had to strip away a lot of your book and then you kind of reframed it. Do you still work from a, a an outline? No, I, ever since then, uh, an outline is the only way I work. I learned a real lesson with that first book about knowing where you're going. I definitely painted myself into a corner. The first book, the first version of the first book ends in a very different place than it does in the final version. And uh, that was because I kept coming up with cool ideas, like things I thought were neat, and following those rather than knowing where I was going. And the result of that was a book that fell apart in the third act. Didn't have any sense of closure, didn't have any sense of real accomplishment, like turned my characters into some into into something that I didn't want them to be. And so ever since I had to do that, all of that work of cutting it apart and rebuilding it, 
uh, now I can't work without an outline. So I have an outline that's in excess of 100 pages for each book. That's just like a long bulleted list broken out into chapters. So I know everything that's going to happen in the book in advance. And like, I know where it's going to end and I know who's going to win which fight. And I know who's going to live and who's going to die and how they're going to defeat the, the final boss or whatever. I know all of that going into it so that when I start writing the prose, I can focus on how the characters feel about what's happening. Like, what are their senses telling them? What are their emotions telling them? Why is this fight harder than, than other ones? Because there's an emotional content to it. Like, how do you deal with like the loss of your best friend while still trying to go on and do other things? Like, those are the things that I focus about when I'm writing the prose because I don't have to worry about the plot stuff because I've already figured all that out. It's less fun to write that way, <laughs> but you know, like who said your job should be fun. Do you use any um, sort of plotting techniques or outlining techniques? And I know there's like some people use like the Dan Harmon's story circle or the hero's journey. Do you, do you use anything or did you just come up with your own? I, have come up with my own and i think that everyone in the end has to come up with their own you can start out with the hero's journey or you can start out with like in in writing to sell the book that i recommended earlier there's like a you know these are these, these are the three acts of your story and like this is how your story should go and here's a list of successful stories that use this technique those plans exist but i think that you also have to take into consideration that everyone is different everybody's brain works differently. Everybody's creativity works differently and you can't expect yourself or someone else to fit into the same mold. Right. So you can use those techniques as a jumping off point, but in the end you have to figure out the best way that works for you. And so I've never really approached storytelling like that. I think that I, I come in with a big jumble of ideas and I pour them into a notes file and then I sort of organize them chronologically in the way that I think they should occur in the story. And then I start filling in the gaps to make, to get, you know, point A to point B. And then I uh, decide which characters would best serve as a, as a point of view for, for different things that I want to tell in the story and how that point of view can affect their own personal story arc. And then I, and then it gets a little bigger and then, you know, I work out all of the details of like, okay, well, this is happening at this time over here, and this is happening at that time over there. And how do I get these times to sync up so that when they meet, you know, I know where both characters are. It's sort of like a big jumble that I slowly organize over time. And then once it's all organized, then I'm like, okay, now I can take this and go write the book. But I know plenty of authors who just sit down with a blank page and start writing prose and, and make it up as they go along and have and write amazing books. Yeah. And so I can't say that my method is better, but I also see people do that and write themselves into a corner and say, oh, I had to throw out, you know, 50,000 words because it wasn't working and now I have to start over. And I can then smugly sit back and be like, well, I haven't done that in 15 years because uh, now I plot everything. Right. The the magic comes to all of us differently and that's okay. Right. So when you have all these ideas coming at you um, and you're, you're plotting them down or jotting them down, how do you sift through which ones are, are good, which ones are bad, which ones need to be tweaked, which ones safe for later? Do you have any ideas on how to do that? I don't have like a method for it. I, I think that um, just whatever the story calls for. Well, see the thing is if you, if you say whatever the story calls for, then you're in danger of your characters 
doing things that they wouldn't normally do, doing out of character things in order to make the story work. And you see that a lot in storytelling. And so that is something you really have to look out for. On the flip side, if you focus too much on your characters, you can end up with a dull story or a story that doesn't uh, have a satisfying movement and climax and, and conflict. This is sort of the age old problem for writers is that if everybody is reasonable, then you don't have any conflict and you don't have a story. But if everybody is unreasonable, then the reader will say like, why would they do that? You know, like, why are they fighting when, when they could just like have a two minute conversation where they explain what the problem is and, and it'd be fine. Right. And so finding a way to keep your characters in a constant state of conflict while also being true to who they are is like the real trick, I think. And that is the, the way you sort of sand down those rough edges and figure out what ideas you want to build on and what ideas uh, you might want to scratch out. And you've been a fantasy fan for a long time. Do you remember kind of the first launching point of, of story or book that you read that you were like, this is, this is what I want to read from the rest of my life. I mean, it was the Hobbit. It was, that was the first book that I read that I didn't have to, you know, it was the first book. It was the first like non-school novel that I chose to read for myself and who is to say if I if I had chosen Sherlock Holmes or something else if my my life would be different but I read The Hobbit and I fell in love with it and then I tried to read The Lord of the Rings but I was too young for The Lord of the Rings and so I don't think I ever got past The Village of Bree in The Lord of the Rings until I was in high school when I tried to read it you know in, in grade school like I read The Hobbit no problem and then I tried to read this much bigger thing and it was so dense and so footnoted and I just couldn't hack it. And so I switched to comic books for, for quite some time. And then it was Terry Brooks, The Wish Song of Shannara that sort of brought me back to fantasy and was like, all right, this is what right, this is what I love. And then I read hundreds of other fantasy books, a lot of the like Dungeons and Dragons tie-in books, you know, um, the you know, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman Dragons books and like the Forgotten Realms novels, but also like pretty much every other, like I, I hit most of the fantasy authors on the bookshelves at my local store and then stuck with the ones that I liked. And then it was, it wasn't until I was probably 19 or 20 that I went back and read the Lord of the Rings and like enjoyed it much more as an adult than I ever could have when I was nine. A similar story with me. It was, it was the Hobbit. And when I tried to read the, the Lord of the Rings, the unexpected party or the expected party, the long expected party, the first chapter, I could never get through that when I was young. It wasn't until I was a little bit older. Yeah, it's 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 dry, and and um, it's not that it's not good. It's very good, but it's not written for kids. It's way too dense. And um, you said you were a fan of comic books, and you got to write for a comic book, Red Sonya, right? Yeah, I did write Red Sonya briefly. Um, I was a big fan. I think because I was a fantasy fan, I read a lot of Conan books. I read Red Sonya and. Um, that style of comic and so i just happened i was i was actually i was hanging out with brandon sanderson at comic-con brandon sanderson and i have the same literary agent and so like we were sort of like hanging out with our literary agents at comic-con and brandon was having a meeting with the head of dynamite comics i was talking to like you know the head of production or something just making small talk while brandon was doing his meeting uh -huh. And uh, I was telling them that I, I was really happy that they had relaunched Red Sonja because I read it a lot when I was a kid and I really loved it. I started talking about the history of the character and uh, 
how different a character she was when I was reading it. In the 80s, when I was reading the book, they had sort of gotten rid of the, the chain metal chainmail bikini and like put, put her in this sort of like fur bathing suit that was more in line with like Conan's like fur bathing suit. I really loved the book then. And so I was telling the, the um, guy at Dynamic Comics about that. And, he's, and he just said, we have to get you writing Red Sonja. And I said, look, I, I've got books on contract. I don't have time. I can't do it like a prolonged thing, but I'll do I'll do a four issue miniseries. And so it ended up being one double-sized one-shot comic and then a four-issue series like a year later. Um, but it's all been collected into one book, Red Sonja Unchained, which I really love doing. And it was a big learning curve for me because comic book writing is very different from novel writing. Um, you have to do more with less in comics and you have to, A, trust your artist to do a lot of the storytelling for you, but also when the artist does something different than what you anticipate, you also have to sometimes rewrite the story to, to make it fit whatever they drew. And also just pace it because every book is the exact same length. You can't do what you can do in a novel where you just take as long as it takes to tell the story. Uh, you have to keep to a format that works out where each issue uh, has the same number of pages, has action, has a climax, has like a, a closure and moves on and leads you into the next book. And that was not as easy as I thought it would be. <laughs> uh, so well, it's a very visual medium. And you only, like you said, like it basically you're, you're just writing dialogue. There's more to it than that because you're, you're, when you write the original script, you have to write in like, okay, these are how you should break out the panels. This is what should happen in the panels. This is what the character should look like. And and some of that, once you have a, a rapport with the artist, some of that you can leave out and, and leave it up to the artist. But as a novel writer, I am a control freak. I'm used to playing God in all aspects of my work. And so I would write really detailed descriptions of things uh, for the art. And I would even put in like, you know, here's where you should put the camera for this. Here's where you should put the camera for that to, to set up the shot. And sometimes the artist would, would take my ideas and, and turn them into something amazing. And sometimes the artist would say like, you don't know what you're talking about and do something completely different, but better. And then I would have to rejigger the story to, to work with it. And a lot of the dialogue, you would write these like amazing speeches and then have this tiny little word bubble that you had to fit it into and you'd say like, okay, I have to take this hundred word speech and cut it down into, into 20 words in order to fit in the space that we have. And how do I tell the, you know, how do I get the same effect out of 20 words that I got out of a hundred words? There's a lot to it. It's a big, it was a big learning curve. And I, I went into it with a certain level of arrogance because I had read so many comics and I just thought that I knew how to do it. And so it was nice that it, it was a humbling experience, but then once I figured it all out, I felt like I'd really accomplished something and like learned a different skill. Sounds like it is a lot of work. And I guess what I mean is the finished work, like you said, like you have all this pre-work that you did, but you have to cut it down and make it fit in these certain amount of pages and panels and, and word bubbles. Yeah. I mean, and, and so the book, the book as it finished was very different from the book as it was in just my scripts. But that's sort of the beauty of it too, you know, like you're, you're working with other creatives and building something together. And so your part of it is only part of it. And so I'm really proud of how it turned out and I really like how it turned out, but it is interesting how different it is from the, from the original scripts that I'd written. Do you have any other hobbies that you do? 
Uh, I kickbox um, mostly. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't. It's not fighting. You know, it's more like I have a trainer and like I'm hitting pads and and uh, it's partially exercise and partially like an excuse for me to talk to a competitive kickboxer about fighting so that I can make the fight scenes in my stories better um, and get a sense of what it's like to be in a fight and get a sense of what it's like to be like how quickly you get exhausted when you're in a fight, which is not something you think about when you're on your couch, like reading a fight or like watching one on TV, you don't realize that like, wow, they've been fighting for three minutes. Like a real human who was fighting for three minutes would be completely exhausted. And that, would affect the outcome of the fight. And so it's nice to have a little practical experience there because it's something that I can apply to my work and it, you know, keeps my old man body functioning. I think anybody that wants to be a writer should do some sort of uh, combat skill, whether that's, you know, kickboxing, wrestling, to, to get a sense of that and it'll make their writing a whole lot better. I was a wrestler in high school and I can't tell you how tired your forearms get yeah. wrestling. And it's not something that you would think of. I can't imagine holding a sword that weighs one, two, three pounds and waving it about. You know, that's something that unless you experience yourself, you don't know how to, to write that or even bring that in. So I, I think it's important to, to kind of experience stuff like that to, to really get a sense of what characters can go through. It absolutely is. And, and it changes a lot of your like preconceived notions about how these things work like if you even if you just like worn a suit of armor at the renaissance festival for a day you suddenly realize like wow walking around with 40 to 60 pounds of metal on me like <laughs> has a big effect by the end of the day um yeah or even like getting a bow and shooting it 50 times and see how wore out your back gets from it in your chest yeah i i have um I, I play video games on the on the Oculus, the VR uh, device, and there's an archery game where like you're not even holding a bow or or an arrow, but you're just doing the motion over and over again, and your arms get exhausted just from that. And so if you imagine like you know you've also got like a thirty pound or forty pound draw on that bow, and uh, you know the weight of the bow itself, and, and like your your arms would be shaking like, and so when you see you know, Hawkeye in a Marvel movie, just shooting over and over and over and over and over again. You're like, no, like no human could do that. The actor himself said just holding his fake bow that, that didn't actually have a string was exhausting. In fact, my brother and I are talking about making a bow, going hunting with it, just a, another level of experience. So now that should be interesting. And I'm actually going to do a, uh, I'm doing a YouTube channel about stuff like that uh, I want it to be a reference for authors so that they know how to actually build a fire and shelter and how to shoot a bow because even even the great will of time as much as I love that there's still like stuff that Robert Jordan doesn't get right and Robert Jordan uh you know is a bronze star veteran like, like yeah it's interesting though because I, I mean I get there's a big difference between sitting in a helicopter behind a machine gun and uh running around with a sword and a suit of armor it, it, like and i don't think there's any way for any author to get all of it right if you're building an entire world no. but like every bit that you can get some practical experience in can really enrich your writing or you know con conversely it can also there's a there's a thing in writing called uh, i suffered from my art and you should too it was for there's a um 
a writing guide called the Turkey City Lexicon made by a number of very famous uh, science fiction and fantasy authors that just gives a list of like terms to describe things that commonly happen in, in SF stories. And the I suffered for my art is one of the things that really stuck with me and it sticks with me most because of if you're writing a book where there's a, a sailing ship, for instance, and you spend months researching like, you know, what the top sail does and what this, you know, that does and like how all the parts of the ship work together. There's a real tendency to want to include all of that in your book. There's a level of technical detail that starts to slow the story down and, and saying like, I don't need to know how to sail a ship to follow this story. And I think that artists really, like once they do a lot of that research, they want to put a lot of that research into the book. You don't always need to do that. You as an artist need to do the research so that you understand it, but you don't always need to put all of your research into your novel. Exactly. Well, let's talk about like the warded man. You have a character who's a, like an herbalist. And as somebody who would, would do that, they would need to know the difference between like a poultice and a salve and how to, how to do it. And those are kind of stuff that you would have to research to, to know the difference as well. So at least when people read this and know about that stuff, don't go, no, nah, that's not right. Like he doesn't know what he's talking about. I spent 10 years working in pharmaceutical publishing. I had a decent sense of what drugs can do and what they can't do. I had the benefit of a uh, fantasy world where the characters had access to books of science that were at a technology level above where the rest of the world was because it's sort of post-apocalyptic. And I had the benefit of being able to rename every plant so that you know, I don't have to tie them to real world plants. So that's the joy of fantasy writing yeah. though. <laughs> and so like I did, I do try very hard to make those scenes accurate. I have, uh, you know, there's a couple of doctors in the family that I will absolutely go to and, and uh, talk to about like surgery and talk to about, you know, like, well, you know, if you pull the knife right out, what actually happens? And uh, to get a sense of some of those things to make those scenes more plausible but i can also just you know make up a plant that has a property that can do pretty much whatever i want it to um and so i just try to keep it within the realm of plausibility of like okay i know that drugs can actually do this rather than just have plants that can do outrageous things um so there's no like there's no secret herb that like can make you fall into a death-like state for seven days and fool any, any doctor who examines you and then you wake back up. Like, I don't, I don't do anything like that, but for me, it's more like, okay, this person just got clawed by a demon and like, what, how would that actually go down? If a skilled healer was there, what would they do? Yeah. Like, what are their chances? What are the chances they're going to walk again when it's, when it's over with? That's where I kind of keep my focus for the stories. Yeah. And you do a fantastic job. Thank you. Do you have any plans this year of going anywhere? I know the pandemic has kind of locked anything down, but if things open up, do you, do you know if you have any plans this year, early next year? Well, we pushed, we pushed the book launch from May until August with the hope that I would be able to go on a book tour when it comes out. And then for a while it looked like I wouldn't now, uh, you know, with with Biden saying that that uh, vac vaccination should be open to all Americans by May, I'm starting to feel more hopeful that by August I'll certainly be vaccinated, and the hopefully enough people will be that we'll be approaching something close to normal, like the old normal again. But that said, I don't know that 
it will translate to people being willing to gather at events the way they used to. I'm still hoping to go on book tour in August, um, but we haven't made any real decisions and we haven't made any uh, booked any tickets or, or plans because we're still sort of waiting to see how things play out. If I'm able to travel, I absolutely will. Um, it's one of the things that I like best about my job. If I'm not able to travel, uh, I'm hoping that I can at least fly out to a few key warehouses and sign a ton of books and then have the warehouses distribute those books to places so that people can get them. But my preference would certainly be to get out there again. Normally when I have a new book come out, I do a book tour in the US, I do a book tour in the UK, I do a book tour in Germany, I do a book tour in Poland, and then there's like one or two other countries a year that I'll go to for a convention or, or some other special event. Getting to travel, getting to meet readers, getting to go to countries I've never been to before, like that was one of my favorite parts of the job. And, and that's something that came to an abrupt halt last year and has made things really difficult because a lot of friends that I built along the way, like either readers or other writers that I would just run into at this convention or that, like I don't see them anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to getting back to that, but I am also being realistic and saying that who knows when there'll be Comic-Cons again in person. Tell everybody how they can reach out to you or, or read more of your stuff. Uh, you can find uh, my website is www.petervbrett.com. Um, on social media, I am at pvbrett, P-V-B-R-E-T-T, on almost every... It's PV Bread on Twitter, PV Bread on Instagram, PV Bread on Facebook, PV Bread on Tumblr. Regardless of what social media you like to use, I'm probably on it and uh, can be contacted. But good old-fashioned email is still one of the best ways to get in touch with me. Uh, I'm most likely to respond quickly on Twitter. Uh, if you email me, I will always respond, but it might take a while. If you message me on like Instagram or Facebook, like, I'll probably see it before it gets buried by other messages <laughs> and we'll probably respond, but you know, it, it varies from platform to platform. Um, when you, when there's so many ways to, for people to get in touch with you, sometimes it's easy to forget about one every right. once, every couple of months, I remember that there's a messaging system in Goodreads and I go in there and there's usually a pile of messages that I forgot about. And then I <laughs> tick through them eventually. Anyway, uh, the demon cycle series is complete. You can, pick it up anytime. The first book is The Warded Man. It's a five book series and has a firm ending. So you can just read those and be done, binge it. But I also have The Desert Prince coming out uh, on August 3rd in the US. Uh, that is the beginning of a new series. You can pick that up without having read any of the other books. It's available for pre-order now. The cover is awesome. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you um, agreeing to do this. Um, thank too. you very much. Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.